0: Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. I was writing out this episode on Martin Luther King Weekend, and I was reflecting on how Martin Luther King is remembered. Almost everyone remembers him now as a hero. But that was not the case when he was still alive. Large swaths of the people and the political establishment of the United States reviled him at the time. What changed? Is it just time, or is it something else? And how much did it really change? It has been said that dedicating a day to him, as well as all the other honors that he is now given, has been a way to tame his message which is more radical than many people have understood or have wanted to understand. The same could be said of Jesus. But one thing that is interesting to me in all of this is how, in the wake of the life and death of Martin Luther King, very few in the U.S. can now outright oppose civil rights and overtly support white supremacy. Although the past few years have seen a rise in overtly white supremacist groups, They are still mostly disavowed by the larger conservative movement, even if only by trying not to notice them or denying what they really are. Even on the right, most people and most politicians don't want to be accused of white supremacy or to be called racist, and very few will speak against the name of Martin Luther King. It is as if his assassination pronounced a final judgment on those who opposed him. They may still be trying to wiggle out from under that judgment, but they cannot do it completely. The judgment, however reinterpreted and compromised, still stands. It is as if his opponents were following a script that labeled him a deviant, an enemy of the people, who should be violently put down, a script they thought would lead them to victory, show them to be right in their judgment. But meanwhile, he was following a different script one that understood and anticipated their script. He was following a deeply moral and nonviolent script that followed the path of justice and pulled back the veneer of false righteousness that his enemies hid under, revealing who they really were. The script that Martin Luther King was following would pronounce judgment on his enemies. Many understand his statement the night before his assassination that he would not get to the Promised Land with his people to be a prediction of what was about to happen. It's also worth noting that he used Moses' imagery in that statement. Moses led the people out of Egypt, but did not make it to the Promised Land with them. As we have seen, Matthew presents Jesus as a second Moses. The parallels between Martin Luther King and Jesus are quite stark. Jesus, in the story in Matthew that we have been following, has already predicted his own martyrdom, and in this passage today he gives the most clear articulation of the counterscript, the prophetic script that he is following, and this script will transform his brutal execution into a judgment on his executioners. It is the script of the coming of the Son of Man, the human one. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 64 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's read Matthew twenty six, fifty seven to sixty four. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, in whose house the scribes and elders had gathered. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside he sat with the guards in order to see how this would end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? They answered, He deserves death. Jesus is taken to the house of the high priest Caiaphas for what seems to be a trial before the Sanhedrin. But is it an official trial before the Sanhedrin? Those assembled at the house seem to be the Sanhedrin, but they are not meeting at a time or place that the Sanhedrin officially meets. According to Jewish Virtual Library, the Mishnah describes the Sanhedrin as an assembly which met in the chamber of hewn stones in the temple. They met daily during the daytime, and they did not meet on the Sabbath or during festivals or on festival eves. This assembly is not in the chamber of hewn stones in the temple. It is meeting during the night and during a festival. It seems that they don't want to wait until they can have an official meeting. So this seems to be a somewhat informal one, not bound, therefore, to normal requirements of the law. But although it is unofficial, it acts with the authority of an official court. This scene portrays again the dishonorable behavior of the elite to circumvent the law. They try to look for false evidence against Jesus, and have a hard time doing even that, perhaps because the law stipulates that two witnesses have to agree, and in an effort to maintain some very basic legal standards, they are having trouble finding two people who can tell the same story. The astute reader might wonder why they even have to search for false witnesses. Wouldn't Jesus' disruption of the temple sacrifices and his previous violations of the Sabbath have been enough to convict him of a capital crime? People had been executed for merely speaking against the temple. And Exodus 31.15 clearly states that the punishment for violating the Sabbath is death. But we must remember that the story has portrayed Jesus as successfully defending his actions on the Sabbath on legal grounds, and while his justification for his actions against the temple were not strictly on legal grounds, they had a morally righteous grounding buttressed by an appeal to the prophets. The portrayal of Jesus and Matthew is of a morally upright person who is faithful to the law. So to convict him, false evidence must be found. Interestingly, when two witnesses finally do agree on false evidence, it is something that Jesus supposedly said against the temple. This accusation that Jesus said that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days leads the chief priest to ask Jesus if he is the Messiah, the Son of God. This might seem like a leap to our modern ears, but there is a connection. The link between Jesus supposedly saying that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it, and being the Messiah, may come from the prophecies in books such as First Enoch, Tobit, and Jubilees, that predict the destruction of the temple and its rebuilding, activity that would likely later have been attributed to the Messiah. And while the coming Messiah was not necessarily understood to be the Son of God, the coming Messiah was popularly understood to be a son of David, and there was precedent for that line of kings to be called sons of God. So the high priest asked Jesus if he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus gives an equivocal answer you have said so. Then he says, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He is asked if he is the son of God, and he replies with a prophetic text about the son of man, which can also be translated the human one. Jesus has repeatedly referred to himself as the son of man or the human one. And now Jesus cites clearly the text from which he draws this title, Daniel 7. Daniel 7 portrays a court scene where the empires that have oppressed Israel are put on trial. God holds court, pronouncing and enacting judgment on the empires. And then one like a son of man comes on the clouds of heaven, and the dominion that was held by the empires is given to the one like a son of man. God's court condemns the empires and vindicates and liberates one like a son of man. By citing this text, Jesus is flipping the script of this kangaroo court. The high priest is appointed by the current empire that oppresses Israel, the Roman Empire, and many on the Sanhedrin likely have Roman citizenship. Jesus is in effect telling the high priest, I'm not the one on trial here. You are. The script that the Sanhedrin follows says that Jesus is the deviant, the criminal, who will be executed. The prophetic script that Jesus follows vindicates him and judges those who will crucify him. According to the prophetic script, they are the ones on trial, not Jesus. The cross will be their judgment and it will be the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the human one. But only those with eyes to see can see this parousia. Let's read verse 67. Then they spat in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Messiah, who is it that struck you? Immediately the degradation begins. This despicable behavior by the Sanhedrin is rooted in a twisted psychology of needing not just to defeat their enemy, but to humiliate him. Here is the insightful comment on this verse by Bruce Molina and Richard Rohrbaugh. Throughout this gospel, Matthew presents Jesus as a person whose words and deeds are all out of proportion with the honor status of a village artisan. Thus, Matthew's account shows repeatedly how Jesus is recognized by friend and foe, grudgingly, indirectly, ironically, by friend and foe alike as being more than he initially appears. He is, in fact, the honored Son of God. Notices in the Gospel that Jesus' opponents could not do anything because the crowds were astounded by his teaching, or that they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet, are indications that Jesus' honor status in the public mind rendered him invulnerable. Thus, in order to destroy him, it became necessary for Jesus' opponents first to destroy his standing in the eyes of all the people. In all of the Gospels, they do so through what anthropologists call status-degradation rituals. The status-degradation ritual is a process of publicly recasting, relabeling, humiliating, and thus recategorizing a person as a social deviant. Such rituals express the moral indignation of the denouncers and often mock or denounce a person's former identity in such a way as to destroy it totally. Usually, it is accompanied by a revisionist account of the person's past, which indicates that he has been a deviant all along. A variety of social settings—trials, hearings, political rallies—can be the occasion for this destruction of a person's public identity and credibility. That was from Bruce Molina and Richard Rohrbaugh. Let's read verse 69 to the end of the chapter. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to curse and swore an oath. I do not know the man. At that moment the cock crowed. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. After the Sanhedrin mocked Jesus' ability to prophesy, Peter's thrice denial before the cock crows demonstrates Jesus' ability to prophesy. Peter vindicates Jesus to the audience in a most ironic way. Peter, the most prominent of the disciples, the one on whom Jesus said he would build the church, the ecclesia, that Peter denies Jesus three times. The parousia has begun with a degradation and then a denial. The prophetic script tells the story in a way that even the reader, even perhaps the original audience, has a hard time following, because it is not what we want to hear. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please spread the word about this podcast. And if you are able, rate the podcast and provide a review that will draw more people to it. You can submit questions and comments to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has supported this podcast in all the ways that you have done that. This has been Episode 64 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.